The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spinoff with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Recently, a local venture capital fund, Global From Day One, announced that it closed a $130 million fund to invest in New Zealand companies wanting to scale to be big worldwide successes. The total included $45 million from Elevate, a New Zealand government initiative to supercharge the local venture scene. It's the largest investment that fund has made. In the New Zealand context, it's a big total, and GD1, as they're generally called, are one of the longest-running VC firms here, moving from their first fund specialising in seed or investments very early on in a company, through to Fund 2, that was for companies a little further on, to this, Fund 3, that is designed to help Kiwi companies that have found initial traction for their product or service or idea and help them scale to be big emerging global leaders. To do the global bit, the company has partners with a bunch of global experience across finance, marketing, venture, operations, and hardware. Their hardware expert, for example, was a hardware scaling leader at Apple. That Apple experience and a background at Fisher & Paykel Healthcare has helped today's guest, Vignesh Kumar, build a big network of companies he's advised, invested in, and supported through his work at the commercialisation agency Return on Science, and as a board member at KiwiNet, the consortium of the leading research agencies in New Zealand. Vignesh is a partner in Global from day one, and to talk the VC world, his personal purpose, and what Apple was like, Vignesh Kumar joins us now by Zoom. Tenakwe, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Simon. Hey, take us back to the beginning and um, your start as an engineer at that great New Zealand company, uh, Fisher and Paykel Healthcare. Will do, will do. And I think uh, the first thing I'll say is, um, for me, everything that I've done has kind of come from my engineering experience. And so, yeah, I started as a biomedical engineer uh, from the University of Auckland. Um, and at that time, 2007, 2008, uh, the only employer really who understood what a biomedical engineer was or what they did or how they could be used was uh, the great Fisher and Paykel Healthcare out in East Tamaki in Auckland. Um, and so I joined that team uh, working as a, a medical device designer. So I designed uh, medical devices that resuscitated premature babies um, and I also designed medical device, which was uh, used in the kind of adult resuscitation space, uh, but mostly focused on the infant vertical. Um, and I spent my time there doing that for about six odd years. Um, but yeah, real, a great kind of um, starting school, if you will, for engineering, because FNP at that time 
uh, also kind of uh, not really uh, competitively harassed by others in the in its kind of ecosystem. Uh, getting into the medical device industry was quite difficult, quite onerous. Um, and F&P had kind of gone through the long slog in the early 80s, 90s to kind of get to that dominant position. And so uh, quite a protected environment really to do your engineering work and learn um, without risk of really uh, materially impacting the company. And it's not a long time ago, but quite a different time in terms of the number of companies, as you were saying, active in the space and the number of startups um, taking on niche challenges in there. Um, how has the kind of like, you know, pace of change uh, moved since then? It's, I think, yeah, you're right. Look, I mean, when you think about it, it's probably been a decade or so in total, and that's not really huge compared to kind of the 20, 30 years that people talk about in terms of change. But um, you know, saying it then in at F&P, for example, we'd spend five to six years kind of designing a medical device to get to market. Um, and you can imagine that's a huge chunk of your career, especially as an early engineer, refining one to two products. Um, and then obviously in the last kind of 24, 36 months, we're seeing this proliferation, even in medical devices, where you're seeing the cadence of stuff get super fast. Um, and when you contrast it to general consumer technology, um, you know, when I spent time working for Apple in the US, their cadence of getting product out the door obviously is second to none as the hardware incumbent, right? And um, they are literally working on tens of products every three, four months. And you're just cranking out product after product after product and working to this real crazy expeditious timeline, um, which doesn't really apply uh, to the medical devices sector. But again, contrasting it to 10 years ago in medical devices, it's night and day. It's kind of this exponential step change in kind of getting things out the door to the consumer and really understanding what they want. Yeah, and, and that kind of consumer understanding, um, you you mentioned that you started in engineering, but then you went and studied on a Fulbright scholarship uh, in the USA at, at Wharton, um, an MBA. What took you to want to do a Master of Business Administration? What what kind of lit your fire and interest there? I think the, honestly for me, Simon, was the fact that um, as an engineer, I could definitely see what I was doing, enjoy that role and that responsibility. But I definitely wanted to be in charge of kind of the vision of where things were going, the strategy of where things were going. And um, unlike now, which is kind of, you know, it, it's crazy to say this again, in 10 years, so much has changed. When I was doing up my, my first six years at F&P Healthcare, it was unheard of of an engineer to become something like a business development manager or to become something who was involved in strategy. Uh, and those required real kind of uh, uh, career pivots, if you will. And the career pivots really came through stuff like the MBA, where, especially at good schools offshore, uh, where they could allow you to kind of sidestep retraining, if you will, over another five, six years and kind of land um, kind of really safely into um, a great kind of strategy or management type role. And for me, that was really the the driving motivation as a young engineer. Um, but obviously now when you look at how things are going, we really celebrate the diversity of people's work experiences. And being an engineer doesn't preclude you from taking up a startup strategy role or a startup managerial role. Uh, so kind of the, the landscape has fully evolved. But I think... Um, Given the, the circumstances and the timing back then, 
the Fulbright scholarship for me was kind of a, a release from New Zealand to see the bigger, bigger world, um, get a sense for what it was like working outside of New Zealand's borders, working in other verticals. Um, because again, I'd worked for New Zealand's largest company, FNP Healthcare, um, and I didn't really have any other kind of barometer for how the world worked outside. So um, yeah, that really was the driving motivation. Get out, get overseas, get that diverse experience. Uh, at the same time, go to a good school, uh, try get that through a scholarship. Yeah, and that's a super prestigious thing to accomplish too. How does a Fulbright scholarship happen? And, you know, where did it take you? Um, look, I think the Fulbright scholarship was definitely life-changing. Um, and it was it's something offered in, in concert by the U.S. Uh, State Department and the New Zealand government, um, especially for kind of sending Kiwis offshore. And uh, I think at that time, again, I was one of very few engineers applying for the process. And if I have to be really honest about it, I think my skills and experience probably wouldn't hold a candle to the kind of great engineers we're seeing now come through the ecosystem. But I think I was probably the most um, kind of forthright wanting to get something to move on and grow their career. And so I applied to that process. But um, again, those sorts of things are looking for people who are not only good in what they've done, but also want to grow um, kind of in a targeted fashion and know exactly what they want. Um, but yeah, that was a, a process in and of itself where um, I think, you know, I set my own strategy of trying to get my master's in engineering before applying. Um, and just to kind of, uh, as they say, add a bit of momentum uh, to your profile. Because again, coming from the bottom of the world at that time, um, you're going from a small pond to a huge pond. And you kind of need to uh, have that competitive aspect in your background and profile to kind of get in. But uh, yeah, look, I was really um, humbled and honored to get that. And it's something that has really changed and catalyzed my career. Um, so yeah, really, really fortunate and really thankful to have the support of the Fulbright Commission uh, and the New Zealand government, MBA. And that, that university you went to, uh, Wharton for the MBA, that's one of the top MBAs in a country that puts a lot of store on an MBA and has a lot of universities or colleges offering them. Um, yeah, tell us about what the kind of, what's it like with what are, you know, some of the leading, you know, the people at the very top of um, the academic success across the states and the world are going to these places. What was it like going there? Was it a step up from New Zealand or how did you find it? And, and um, yeah, what, what did you gain from being in that environment that you wouldn't have in a smaller New Zealand environment? So I think, look, firstly, I will say, uh, even in the undergraduate degree in New Zealand, I was kind of amazed and surprised at the different backgrounds people had and how smart um, and how academically focused they were. Um, and I think for me, when I went to the States and went through Wharton, I wasn't surprised by the academic rigor. No, I think you, you've seen enough smart people in your life in New Zealand to know what smart looks like and how you have to kind of knuckle down and achieve something. But perhaps what you learn in an ecosystem like that um, is kind of it's fast-paced and you're balancing that academic pursuit or kind of growing your knowledge base in a hyper-accelerated fashion. Uh, because again, programs like the MBA, they're two years. And of the two years, you're practically spending perhaps a year and a bit of kind of learning in classroom. But the rest of it is sort of experiential. And you're kind of soaking in how 
your American compatriots, your um, you know, international colleagues at, at, in the program, how they're learning, how they're executing, how they're balancing their lifestyles. Um, and that really sets, us, sets you apart because, again, you know, the Kiwi lifestyle, which is sort of evolving again now with this kind of focus to just um, doing side hustles, doing many things. Again, back then, it sounds crazy saying back then, but it's only been 10 years. But back then, you know, I used to go to F&P and people would clock off kind of exactly at four. And then they would cherish um, being able to go to the beach, be, cherish being able to just sit in Tamaki Drive and have fish and chips or something um, versus in the U.S. Again, it's kind of that hyper-accelerated, um, you're constantly trying to achieve something and just keep smashing it out. And so I think that's what soaks into you. Um, and again, as you pointed out with these sort of schools, um, a lot of it is sort of finishing schools for, um, you know, the kind of blue chip families of the U.S. or kind of people who are at the top of their careers. And I just really wanted to be amongst that, to see how they functioned, how I function, um, and to kind of get an appreciation of, of how I should conduct myself. So that was kind of the real big learning. It was just seeing how everyone balanced their lifestyle. And it gives you a sense of how you have to play the game, especially in the U.S. and kind of offshore competitive markets. And a lot of that competition in the States around colleges and programs is to then land the roles at the kind of best companies. And um, tell me about your uh, internship approach and how that worked out from you um, out of Wharton as a kind of perfect example of that coming true, maybe. Yeah. So I think, uh, look, Wharton, like most uh, MBA uh, business schools, it, it kind of cranks out uh, people who are investment bankers, people who want to become management consultants, uh, people who want to work in venture capital, private equity. Um, and that's kind of what those finance business schools specialize in, is kind of converting people into these most desired job categories. Um, and tech wasn't really on the menu for most business schools then outside of Stanford. Um, so, you know, if you went to Stanford then and it's kind of given that you would end up in the Silicon Valley, um, but other business schools less so, you know, it's kind of you end up in finance. Uh, but when I went to Wharton, I went to get the finance knowledge, yes, but I knew I did not want to work in finance. I think um, one thing I definitely enjoyed throughout my career was making tangible product and seeing what I made or kind of enjoying its use. Um, and so I'd always been an Apple fanboy, um, you know, growing up in New Zealand, getting up early to kind of watch the keynotes, which I still do, um, much to my wife's annoyance. And, you know, that kind of uh, fanboy mentality was what compelled me when I was at Wharton to say, you know what, I'll apply to technology companies um, and especially hardware ones, because that's the skill set I bring. And so um, I just wanted to see how they worked, uh, get a foothold in. And um, yeah, look, I guess I'll say mercifully applied to three technology companies and all three wanted to give me an internship. Uh, but I ended up choosing the one that I was the biggest fanboy for, which was Apple. But um, again, the process is there for doing internships and applying and getting in uh, night and day to what we're used to in New Zealand. Um, I think from memory, I went through what we call like super days for interviews. So two days back to back, each day had seven interviews for an internship. Um, and it just puts you through the ringer to get in. But but once you get in, it's kind of like the golden keys to 
to really stamp your mark on an organization. Wow, and that's a that's a very big investment from an organization to have people spending uh, two days um, interviewing uh, potential candidates at, at the start. Well, what kind of things, you know, that kind of commitment to quality and process of Apple. I remember I worked with a company that did some work with Apple and we, we showed on one of their road shows and they made us do kind of two extra days of um, presentation practice and get it approved by three different people, uh, which we'd never seen before, but they, you know, they wouldn't have anything hit the stage that wasn't to their level yep. of quality. And, um, you know, there's so many things that a company like that that's run by, you know, and Tim, Tim Cook, one of the great operators uh, in, in kind of, you know, co- corporate history, um, as well, obviously, as a, you know, great, great strategist and the like, but a real, real operator. What what kind of things did you um, learn and experience there? Yeah, so look, it's, it's interesting you say operator because that is the key word here. I think... Um, the role that I went through um, was on the operation side. And in fact, it was the role and structure that Tim Cook went through when he kind of went through the company. And everyone who's gone through that route at Apple um, on the operations and kind of what we call the enclosure global supply uh, management side, they know kind of how to, you have to focus kind of aggressively on delivering product. Um, and you have to focus really aggressively on delighting the customer. Um, and so that's kind of Tim's core tenets from when he took over, right? And it's not just kind of delighting, but also delivering uh, versus kind of the Steve's mentality before that was, let's delight the shit out of the customer. Um, the operations will get there, but let's delight the shit out of them. Uh, but Tim was very much a kind of, yeah, look, I'll focus on delighting, but you've got to, I want that screw on the bottom of the iPhone to be flawless, and if that means Vignesh spends six weeks in somewhere in China making sure that the anodizing on that screw is fine, so be it. So that kind of relentless pursuit of operational excellence and kind of making sure that the product was finished right, that's something you learn at an organization like that. And um, that's something I soaked up through that experience. And it really was attention to detail, um, driving to a solution when it's ambiguous, right, which is relevant to startups um, relevant to a lot of things in life where you've given, um, again, not much information. And you kind of have this, the the joke we used to have, and, you know, please don't take this the wrong way, was kind of the eye of Sauron on you. Um, and so you can imagine the eye of Sauron is on you all the time at a place like Apple. And you have literally got to ensure that uh, while the eye is on you, you are doing everything humanly possible under the sun to ensure that the eye does not become something more onerous. Um, and it sounds it sounds kind of scary, and I will say at times it has been, but that's the reason why Apple persists, right? That's the reason why they are the hardware incumbent. That's the reason why it's hard for people to knock them off that perch. And that's the reason why people uh, poach the hardware engineers and the engineers who deliver on product from Apple because you've got that caliber of just diving out of your skin to deliver shit. Um. I love that idea of the eye of Sauron as well, because it really captures that thing about being on some kind of odyssey a long way from home, trying to solve something in a, in a different land, uh, and then <laughs> this home base looking in on you. Um, and then, you, you know, what, what kind of products did you work on at Apple? What kind of hardware did you help scale? Sure. So I worked on the portables line, and so portables, uh, the definition is... Everything which you carry, which is not the iPhone. And so that's going to be the MacBook, um, the Apple Watches, the iPads, um, 
the Apple TV is considered portable, but most people just keep that fixed. But again, um, those sorts of products. Uh, and so the bulk of my time was on delivering actually um, the MacBooks, iPads, because uh, those were the kind of core marquee products, which were kind of changing the direction at the time. So MacBooks, if you might remember, uh, or if you've got one, Simon, the touch bar um, and all that sort of uh, uh, innovation coming through then. And um, uh, look, that was, that was the core products that I kind of worked on to deliver to market. Um, and that was a huge step change, both on the kind of industrial design side, the product design side, and most importantly, on the manufacturing design side. So, um, you know, a lot of great engineering work goes into this stuff. And as a consumer, it's easy to take it for granted. Um, but again, like those products have so much engineering in there um, that it's just kind of oozing out of every seam. But those are the products I worked on. And what led you back to New Zealand? Um, so I guess what led me back to New Zealand was a confluence of two things. The first of which was um, the fact that I actually had a health incident. So I got diagnosed with cancer. Um, so while I was kind of in loving the U.S. Uh, experience, working for, you know, the company that I love the most in the world, Apple. Um, I was traveling around the world, uh, flying to different countries to kind of help scale operations, um, assess young nascent technologies to either license joint venture or acquire into Apple. But in doing all that stuff, you lose sense of kind of uh, uh, work-life balance. And I don't say that in a negative way, but you're just you're so committed to the job that when you kind of, let's say you come come back to the hotel room from a 12-hour day at a factory, for example, you don't stop to go, hey, have I eaten today? Um, have I exercised today in a meaningful way? Uh, will I be getting enough meaningful rest? No, it's kind of you just quickly decompress and get back to work because the time zones are inverted with Asia and the US and you've got to kind of get back onto the grind. Um and you quickly lose sense of self. And I think that process kind of uh, unfortunately uh, kind of masked all the, the typical cancer symptoms. And so, uh, you know, I came back from a work trip once and uh, I hadn't seen my wife for about three weeks. And the first thing she says to me was, uh, not that I missed you, but um, your neck is not symmetrical anymore. Um, and, you know, when you kind of get that sort of line delivered to you, you're kind of going, ah, have I, you know, Everything kind of clicks at that moment. Have I just left this too late? Um, and so kind of for me, uh, that was a defining moment which really kind of said, look, I've got to get better. I've got to beat this thing. Um, and I've got to return to New Zealand. But yeah, look, I spent um, the better part of nine months going through chemotherapy and radiation um, in California at Palo Alto at Stanford Hospital. Um, and, you know, spoiler alert, still here. Uh, so mercifully, all those things um, turned out well, but uh, yeah, an experience I would not want to relive <laughs> in any sense of the word. And so after it, going through the successful treatment in the States, yeah, what kind of a life reevaluation does that set off in terms of what you want to do with your time and where you want to be? And yeah, how does that, how does that bring you back, back to New Zealand? Yeah, so I think, look, again, that sort of life event experience um, it kind of quickly tells you what's worth it. Um, and I think for me, as I said, I'd lost sense of self. Um, and I was committed to, for me, when you asked me then prior to being sick, uh, how do you define Vignesh? I would just say helping Apple be the greatest it can be. 
Um, and it almost sounds cultist or kind of somewhat communist, right? You're kind of striving for singular purpose, um, but that's kind of what's ingrained into you in that culture. And you are rewarded well, you are compensated well, and so those things help accelerate that notion. But when you get sick like this or when a life event puts things into perspective, you go, actually, do I want to be a cog in the machine for the rest of my life? Because let's be honest, a company like Apple, like Amazon, like Microsoft, who have you, they are machines, huge, huge hulking machines. And regardless of the efforts of one individual, you will always be a cog in that machine, unless you are the apex cog, like Tim. Um, and so, you know, that kind of life perspective came back to me. And I said, look, I don't want to spend the rest of my career um, being a cog in the machine. I feel like, you know, I've spent uh, a few years working for Apple in the Valley and across the world. And those few years definitely translate to better than five to six years working anywhere else, um, you know, in kind of equally competitive environments. And it's time to go home, um, time to focus on what matters to me. And so for me, it was really that moment, decided, hey, where should I be going? Back home to New Zealand, spend time um, with my folks, with my friends, um, spend spend time with my wife again and just ensure that, you know, take each day for kind of the, the positive um, value that's been given to you um, as opposed to kind of working up each day and just going through the process. I know during Zoom lockdown, um, I'm starting to feel like, uh, you know, we're all kind of just getting up, logging on to Zoom. Um, and it's, it's kind of feeling like that um, procedurally driven, um, painful experience. But yeah, for me, this is infinitely better than kind of doing what I was doing there in perspective, because again, you're just at the grindstone nonstop, not just in a lockdown, but nonstop. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to come back to a place where there was balanced lifestyle, where I could spend time focusing on my relationships um, and really just nourish myself back to health, um, because that sort of thing really just change you for who you are. And we'll be back in just a moment to hear more from Vignesh Kumar about what he looks for in companies to work with and the work that he's doing to help grow the local scene. Kia ora koutou katoa. Te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. As we find ourselves navigating a new outbreak and lockdown, everyone here at The Spin-Off remains committed to bringing you quality independent journalism, which, of course, includes our coverage of COVID-19. It's not an exaggeration to say we couldn't do this work without the generous support of our members. So, if you'd like to help us keep Aotearoa informed, please visit thespinoff.co.nz slash members for more details and to donate today. Yeah, so t- tell us about coming back. And then you got involved with two kind of big um, big agencies that help commercialization of ideas happen in New Zealand with KiwiNet and also return on science. What got you in there? And um, yeah, how does that help to, I guess, get you right into the scene, but also help grow that next generation of entrepreneurs who don't have that experience of how to take ideas and make them really real things? So yeah, look, I mean, when I came back to New Zealand, I, um, I didn't actually have a sense of what I wanted to do. I think my entire career had been defined by um, technology, had been defined by scaling it, by executing on it, um, and also identifying technology. So as I said, you know, one of the core aspects at my in my role at Apple was identifying young technology to kind of license JV or potentially acquire into our our, our projects. And so 
um, I guess that experience set me up well. So when I came back to New Zealand, um, one of the core things I started doing was taking a look at what my friends were getting involved in. And a few of my undergrad classmates were starting their companies at that time. Um, and they were like, hey, Vignesh, you've done hardware. I'm building something in hardware. Uh, would you mind taking a look, giving some commentary, or would you mind investing? And uh, to be fair, you know, I had done a little bit tiny investing in the U.S., but nothing meaningful. Um, and I decided, hey, you know what? Sure. Let me let me back friends. They're doing what they like. Um, I know them from a credibility perspective, so I know they're not going to go and just blow that money at Sky City, as fun as that might be. Um, and so, you know, I really want to give them the opportunity. So I started doing that. And um, funnily enough, one of the companies I started angel investing in, a friend's company, uh, Uniservices, the University of Auckland's kind of commercialization arm, um, they quickly got in touch and said, hey, you know, look, who are you firstly? Uh, and why are you suddenly kind of randomly investing into startups that we have in our ecosystem? Um, and I really owe a lot of kind of my exposure to their kind of bringing me into the ecosystem. And so I met with um, Will Charles, uh, the executive director at Uniservices, and uh, Joe Rouse, who used to be there, who used to be a commercialization manager. Um, and they really welcomed me, I guess, in the first few months of me being back in New Zealand into the tech ecosystem here. Um, and I think at that time, too, I, I was a bit of a kind of shiny, different experience compared to most Kiwis who had gone offshore. Um, and I think they really appreciated that hardware and kind of deep tech experience. And so um, Will and Joe asked me to kind of sit on the Return on Science Investment Committee um, looking at some of their technologies, giving feedback, um, and kind of you know being able to critically assess um, and kind of give it that lens of would this be investable for others in the ecosystem? Um, and so, look, that kind of like all things just networked effect out. And so, um, through that process, I got involved with uh, you know a lot of colleagues um, in the ecosystem, met a lot of them. So we've got. You know, people from the different VC funds, for example, are sit on that investment committee. Um, at one time, we had Lance from Punakaiki there. Um, you know, I sit on that committee now with Lavina, um, as you know. And um, I met Chintaka from GD1 there, actually. And so that's kind of a great breeding ground, if you will, for exposure, um, because it kind of quickly connects you to who's doing what in the ecosystem. And I don't say that as a kind of, you know, you should go there to network, but it's kind of where a lot of people do congregate to look at technology. Um, and so that's kind of how that organically grew, um, my connections in there. But um, that, that's, that's been an amazing experience on the Return on Science. And um, Return on Science, just to quickly kind of give, give them a quick plug, is they are the investment kind of um, purpose-built structure that wraps around uni services um, and kind of you know, allows them to see early exciting things coming out of uh, University of Auckland and also kind of the affiliate networks around the country. Um, and so that's kind of been a great uh, set of exposure there. And then um, KiwiNet is this kind of um, uh, similar but slightly different in scope, kind of encapsulating the Crown Research Organizations. And um, again, you know, they were looking for a director who... Uh, has was someone who had deep tech experience, someone who had commercialization experience, um, but most importantly, again, someone who brought a bit of diversity um, and someone who could kind of give them that bit of, uh, I guess, uh, novel freshness. 
for what they were wanting to achieve going forward with their mandate. Um, yeah, and that's how I got involved. And you know, it's been it's been amazing to be across both those institutions, seeing the caliber of our science and engineering anchored innovations coming out of New Zealand. Yeah, and it's so cool because you know Stanford uh, became the, the the seed of Silicon Valley because of that. Uh, a very conscious approach of partnering research and business and things like KiwiNet and Return on Science uh, and uni services and all of these um, things are doing that in the local scene, which is so cool. And, and you mentioned there about um, meeting Chintaka at Global from day one. Um, and with your global experience, you must have been an absolute sitter for that um, company. Tell us about GD1. As, um, as we mentioned in the intro, that's an enormous raise in the New Zealand context, you know. Having $130 million to deploy into companies is kind of unheard of for a New Zealand fund if you go back just five years. Yeah. Um, and so who are GD1 and how did you get involved and what do you, what do you do there as a company that's different from other VC? So, yeah, look, GD1, uh, as you kind of put it, uh, global from day one, that's kind of, you know, quite... Uh, compressed onto GD1, but uh, we're a VC that invests, we call ourselves generalist technology investors, but uh, we primarily invest across kind of one of uh, five different verticals. And so the five different verticals, kind of enterprise software, deep tech, uh, health tech, internet platforms, um, and then also hardware-enabled software, what we call connected hardware. But um, again, as you say, GD1 has always been heads down. Uh, we've actually kind of been focused a lot on our portfolio companies and value creation for them. Um, and I've seen the evolution in the ecosystem uh, quite a lot now where you've got to kind of really be saying what you're doing um, and kind of having your, your, your brand out there. But when I came back to New Zealand, um, GD1 was only kind of one of two established kind of VC companies in New Zealand. And um, what I really liked about GD1 was kind of Chintaka, the managing partner of Fund2, his approach to running the firm, which was kind of the, the US style I had been subject to, which was kind of outlier performance, um, people kind of working on their strong internal beliefs, not driven by kind of what an outside investor does or doesn't do, none of that FOMO investing, um, and really having a purpose on why you work with a company. And I think as someone who's an operator um, in my background, it's a disservice when you make an investment and you don't get involved because your money is money and you have to be able to add another layer of value. Um, and for me, I love the way that GD1 and Chintaka, um, with a small team then, would deep dive into portfolio companies and it kind of left no time for anything else, like no time for really the marketing of the fund, no time really for kind of um, growing the, the fund, if you will, but just really focusing on that value creation. Um, and so for me, that really resonated with my experience being hands-on. Um, but more importantly, also, I could see that it was a young firm. And, you know, the biggest thing is when you come back to New Zealand after something like having a life event, you want to do something that adds value and kind of builds something for the future. Um, and for me, I really saw that as a great opportunity to come in and help Chintaka kind of build this up into something that could be even bigger uh, for Fund 3. Um, and so you know, that's what mercifully we've been able to do. So you know, we went from Fund 2, which was roughly 60 million Kiwi, uh, to Fund 3, which we just announced first close of, uh, where we went past 130 million. Um, and so we're on track now to kind of get to our cap around 160 million by the end of the year. 
Um, and look, we're excited. I think the team has grown dramatically. Um, we've brought on a lot of great experienced individuals across different kind of core focus areas. If mine was kind of hardware and deep tech, we've brought on really strong people in marketing, uh, in core finance, in strategy. Um, and so a lot of kind of growth has come into the firm. Um, and that kind of speaks volumes to where we're going. Um, and, you know, for us, yes, look, the VC landscape is definitely getting uh, pretty crowded. I think when you look around now and see um, what's happening in the New Zealand startup ecosystem, there's a lot of kind of money coming in. But the biggest thing that we always hold as our kind of North Star is what is your internal purpose or conviction for investing in a company? And is this a deal that you are going to literally die for, um, kind of going through its life cycle? And if that's not the case, we're not touching it. And then secondly, when you invest in something, it's just not for the utility of giving it the money, as we said, right? It's the utility of being able to keep adding that value from your personal experiences. And so um, that's really informed how I invest at JD1, how John Kells, our other partner, invests, um, and again, how Chintaka invests. And so, um, you know, we've, we've really, really built up our core understanding of what we like, what we invest in, um, and kind of how we set ourselves up from, uh, you know, the competition in New Zealand. But I will also say um, there's, a, there's a benefit to having been at firms that have kind of been around for a little while, where they've been built up that kind of um, track knowledge, if you will, um, and track record of experience over prior funds. And I think that's really helped us kind of correct things we've learned in fund two and in fund one and ensure that in fund three, we don't make those same mistakes. Um, and so I think those kind of, again, help our founders when we get involved with them. Um, but yes, for us, look, we're super excited. Um, we're really deep diving into the ecosystem here to really kind of help companies uh, hit that global ambition perspective um, to kind of be that outlier success. And, you know, it's evidenced by our portfolio companies. So like Fund2 companies, more than 95% of the revenues that they have come from offshore customers. Um, and we're talking, you know, Fortune 50, Fortune 100 type customers. Um, and so these are really chunky, top tier blue chip revenues for our companies. And um, we've had experience dealing with companies like Shuttle Rock, um, you know, based out of Nelson, uh, Upco in Tauranga, um, Spotlight Reporting, um, uh, Vesper, uh, Stretch Sense. So again, kind of great companies which are growing um, and kind of getting to the next level of where they want to be. And each of those companies has all kind of raised um, quite large capital rounds recently. Um, and so Fund3 really want to be able to help companies like that kind of catalyze um, on their next stages of capital raising and kind of capital growth. And that global piece is really interesting. Hey, as you know, um, although the internet and Zoom and all the rest is flat in certain things, there is something about being from a couple of uh, small islands a very long way away in a small market that means that companies, you know, they don't have that lived experience of the bigger market or the bigger business cultures or um, all of these things. So it's kind of hard for companies to make it from New Zealand. Hey, and um, how do you help companies from New Zealand, I don't know, upscale ambition or upscale what they believe is possible? Because in this country, we don't always spend a lot of time telling people to dream that they can be the biggest company in the world. Like it's not particularly, um, you know, how we're brought up, is it? Yeah. 
I think uh, again, look, it's been a it's been a sea change, right? In the last twenty four months, um, twenty four to thirty six months. I think when I came back to New Zealand, most startups were still circumspect whenever they would hear about global strategy, and they'd kind of be like, "Can I do this? Does this make sense? Am I overreaching?" Um, versus now, you're starting to see this embrace of "I can change the world from New Zealand," um, which is awesome. Which is definitely awesome, and. I think a, a buoyant VC ecosystem is a symptom of a buoyant startup ecosystem. And so the fact that, you know, more VC funds are growing is because more startups are going, hell yeah, we can go global. Uh, we have that vision. But there's always still going to be a disconnect between having a vision and knowing how to execute on that vision. And I think that's, again, where we add that value. So, again, you know, we do bill ourselves as a bit of a hybrid operator fund where each of us has and I mean this across the whole fund, not just across the kind of senior leadership, but across the whole fund, each of us has started their own company. Yes, these companies may not have been huge successes. Um, they might be side hustles. You know, in my case, I have my own digital healthcare company um, working to build something for kind of cancer patients. That's my side hustle. Um, but we have that empathy, we have that experience, um, and we understand kind of procedurally what to do for next steps and connect you to kind of the right knowledge leaders in each space to get you to the next step, whether it's software, whether it's hardware. Um, and the second part is, again, we've been in organizations. So all of us, the senior team, have also been in huge organizations. So we've worked on our own startups. We've worked in startups. Um, we've also been in huge organizations where we kind of understand the intrinsic shift from small to large um, and kind of what you have to do that's the nice middle ground to kind of get you the best of best, best of both worlds. Um, and that's a huge kind of value add that we bring, is being somewhat nimble but understanding where you're heading um, in terms of that large kind of size of company and processes and scale. Um, and then outside of that too is the fact that for us, GD1 has always kind of stood for companies wanting to be something on the global market. And we have a strong Rolodex um, of investors, um, advisors, uh, especially from offshore markets and offshore VC, uh, from some of the top tier VC um, who are on our VC advisory board. And these are folks who have made investments into, I think, in the last 18 months, most of Australia's unicorns, uh, for example. And these are people who have made billion-dollar type um, listings in Southeast Asia um, and people who have had kind of been on the ground floor of some of the most iconic tech companies in the U.S., um, and so, yes, there are other firms that have some of those global connections, and we, we're not denying any of that. But I think the difference is we have a core set of people that we've worked with over more than a decade, um, and these are personal relationships. These aren't corporate relationships or sort of kind of um, work relationships that we've just ported over to GD1. These are relationships that are personal. And so these people are kind of committed to ensuring that GD1 and, by extension, GD1's portfolio companies maximize their global success. And that's the kind of value that we add. And having come back here, you, you know, after this personal life event and getting involved with a whole lot of these young companies and these growing companies and helping to build the space here, like what will, as a, as a final thought, what will success be for you personally uh, from, from this work and, and for the company and for GD1? I think for me personally, um, I wake up each day thankful to be on this planet um, still. And it, it, it is something that kind of drives what you do. So everything I try to do um, 
I have to be adding value. And if I'm not additive to the process, then it is a hard kind of forcing function that tells me that maybe I shouldn't be engaging with this. Um, so that's kind of, for me, the success will never be defined personally. And if we're being super honest, if you're coming into VC or anything like that to make money, that's the wrong way to be looking at this. You're really coming in it to still be part of kind of technology value creation, especially in an ecosystem like New Zealand, which is still on the ascendancy. Um, and so for me, again, personal success from this is still seeing the startup ecosystem get buoyant. Um, it's seeing founders like the Will Hewitts of Hot Lab, you know, that I was an angel investor in, um, people like Max Olson from Sea Change um, that I angel invested in, uh, people like James Broadman from Narrative, just as an example, and then people like Jew from uh, Formus Labs, seeing how they all grow and scale and build on their passion, on their interest, um, that's the biggest reward. Because when those companies get to the next kind of capital stage, you can proudly then kind of realize, yep, you took part in a small way when they were really small. Um, and that's kind of the biggest validation, really. So that's kind of the personal success. Um, what would be uh, a milestone of success for me is seeing those guys kind of go out there and just keep smashing it and growing. Um, but then from the GD1 side, I think it's more or less the same, but also developing New Zealand's interest into the VC space as well. I think, you know, VC in New Zealand is still pretty young, despite there being a lot of funds. But success for GD1 is probably, again, growing its footprint, growing the number of people who care about it, um, and also ensuring that we kind of build out our legacy of being the empathetic investors, um, the investors who have a point of difference, um, the investors who operate more like US-style funds. And that's kind of what would be a success for us. Again, not going to be on performance metrics because that's what investors define us by, but this is probably more of the qualitative um, kind of feel-good aspects of it, how I define success for GD1. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing the story today. That's Vignesh Kumar, a partner at GD1. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Simon. Just thank you so much to Teihe Butler for producing in this upside-down Zoom world. And thank you very much for having us along and listening. Look after yourselves. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. Brought to you by The Spinoff and Callahan Innovation. From the Spinoff Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited, and of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.